everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very unusual episode of Podside Picnic, where uh, we're pretty much doing everything differently. We're not talking about books. We're talking about video games. Uh, I'm not joined by Connor. Uh, I'm actually joined by Trevor of No Cartridge Audio. And hey, hey there. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. You know, how should I have introduced you? Was that OK? Th- that's perfectly fine. Uh, all right. Good job. OK. <laughs> so uh, with us today are uh, two of my favorite people in gaming of all time. Uh, we have uh, Leonard Boyarski and Tim Kane. Uh, Leonard has been, well, I'm just going to talk about the games that I care about that he's been been involved in because <laughs> there are a lot. I, I, I used to play Stone's Keep and he was the lead artist on that. Um, he was involved with, I, I guess he was the art director for Fallout. He was, uh, he was the art director and a writer for Arcanum. For Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, which we're going to be talking about a lot. And he was a senior uh, uh, designer for Diablo 3 and the uh, follow-up Reaper of Souls. Not to mention uh, the game director, alongside our other guest, spoiler, on The Outer Worlds, which just came out in October. Um, Deep breath, and let's talk about Tim for a second. Yeah. God, well, so Tim was the uh, the lead programmer on Fallout, was a designer on Fallout 2, lead programmer on Arcanum, uh, lead designer on the Temple of Elemental Evil, programmer on Vampire Bloodlines once again, Pillars of Eternity, and was also with the Outer World. And like, guys, that's about half the games I've played in my life. So thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> You're welcome, Our goal was to keep you busy. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you basically you basically kept Pete out of trouble for the better part of like two decades at this point. So it's, yeah, it's, it's good. You kept me indoors. It was wonderful. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Excellent. So, so Pete, I feel like ahead. you should have the first question. This is like this is this feels like uh, it feels almost like a uh, I don't I don't know like not, monumental's a little heavy, uh, but it feels like you know these are two people that you've wanted to talk to for a while. Like I I feel like you probably have a question on the on the tip of your tongue. Okay, well, I, uh, first off, thank you. Uh, and secondly, uh, well, Trevor, I, this question, you, you deal a lot with the gaming industry, so you I was probably. Say, this better not be a question for me after you. No, have <laughs> I should. Uh, so, um, this episode is mostly going to be about vampire bloodlines, but one of the things I hear again and again when I talk to people is that wonderful music in it. Like we did, you didn't just have like I don't know MIDI music. You had uh, chiasm, you had genitorturers, you had ministry, lacuna coil. Like how did that happen? Like did you guys just say okay, somebody find some vampire music and stick it in, or were you involved with the the 
the music choices or did you set requirements? I guess what I'm saying is like, what is your role as a developer? Uh, Trevor has mentioned it can be different things at different companies. Yeah, it's, it's different. Uh, it is definitely different. It's been different uh, on the different games we've made. Um, on Vampire, a lot of that, or especially with the music, was decided or driven by Jason Anderson, the, the third member of the Troika. Cool. Um, he was the technical, uh, lead technical artist on Fallout. Uh, he helped us design Fallout 2 before we all left to make Troika. Um, and Troy, uh, Vampire was, um, he was the creative director on Vampire, and a lot of that stuff was driven by him. Um, he had a vision for how we were going to represent the game world. Uh, he liked a lot of those bands. He liked a lot of that music. Um, so he started there, and he got a uh, composer, sound, uh, sound director, I guess, uh, named Rick Schaefer, who did a lot of the music for the game, and um, they were pretty much instrumental in driving that part of it. Cool. And so what 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 roles did you guys I mean, uh, this is something that I've come up. Pete sort of said this, like I've talked to a lot of uh, devs. I talked to uh, uh, Josh Sawyer. That's how we got in touch. Um, and Josh has had like a number of, of like comments as, as far as this goes. But like, you know, I won't ask you to give me a title because that gets a little uh, confusing. But like, what were your like roles as you would define them on? I mean, let's just like to, to narrow it down. Let's say let's say bloodlines. Like what was. How would you describe like your particular uh, roles in in that game? I I did a lot of different I wore a lot of different hats on that game. I ended up being the game director, uh, which meant I was interfacing with the publisher a lot, which is the most thankless job. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I also me and Jason and and Chad Moore, who was uh, one of our writers at Troika. Uh, came up with the storyline, uh, a lot of the main uh, endings, um, basically the vibe of what the story was going to be. Uh, we wrote that. I wrote a couple of dialogues. I was much more involved in editing dialogues and much more of a lead narrative designer or director, I guess. Um, just giving a lot of feedback, giving a lot of direction. Um, Chad and, and Brian Mitsoda were fantastic writers on that. So it was mostly just making sure that, uh, that they stayed in the right lanes, I guess. Mm. Um, I also did, uh, I, I think Justin was the art director. Technically I did a lot of art direction on it. Um, I also did uh, texture mapping. I did concept art. I just did a whole bunch of different stuff on there. Nice. And, uh, this is Tim. My job was to watch Leonard. No, I. Oh, um, thank you for saying who you were. I was like, I was just thinking, like, well, I just have to guess now. It's like, just, just, so, just kidding. Um, I actually was working on Temple of Elemental Evil when Vampire started, so I didn't come on to Vampire Bloodlines until about halfway through development. Um, I took over a lot of programming tasks that the lead programmer didn't want to do, so I did code reviews. Um, I uh, did a lot of the AI routines, especially the boss creatures mm. um so like uh the one i remember the most was the man bat at the very end of the game who oh, cool. threw who threw cars and cops and prostitutes at you um <laughs> but then that shark-headed uh vampire that was yeah fish I, at you i actually designed and concepted and textured that guy yeah, that was cool that was a cool but that was when i discovered like there were three different ways of an npc throwing something in the game and I'm like, this, we should probably consolidate. 
<laughs> yeah, so I did a lot of code review in that. Added flying creatures um, so we could have stuff uh, in the air that could fly around and lift up in the air as well. Um, and that was mainly what I did. Uh, it was kind of like there was already a programming team and a lead programmer who were just knocking things out. And I just helped basically coordinate that cool. and then pick up programming wherever it was needed. So I'm just going to ask one more and then I'll, I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Pete. I, what, so like the, it made me think of it with the NPC throwing things, throwing things three different ways. What was like the, was there anything for either of you that stood out particularly like, you know, as the game sort of like found its way towards completion in the later days where like, uh, or in any of the games you've covered, if there's any that, you know, stick out in your memory, particularly of like weird things in code like that, like a like a weird bug or a weird sort of like complication that just was kind of like bizarre. Well, like when I came on board, I was told that we couldn't have flying creatures because <laughs> the source engine didn't support that. But <laughs> when I looked at the very first source demo supplied to us from Valve, it had birds flying around. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure we can do it. Uh, so I put it, I, I looked at how they did it in the demo and then extended that code so we could have creatures that could like fly and land and walk around and then take off again. Oh, that's wild. Um, that's really funny. But yeah, it was, most of it was just, uh, the way they were coding was everybody was off in their own corner doing things. And I'm a big fan of, well, let's, let's all sit down once a week for just 30 minutes. Programmers don't like to do that. And did you have dinner? Did you like, other. did like family dinner? Did everyone go around and like have a yes. conversation card and stuff. That's great. We went around, we were at the table and said, what did you do this week? And that's why the first week somebody said, oh, well, I finished a, a throw routine that uses parametric equations. And somebody went, why well, do you wrote a throw routine that uses impulse? <laughs> and somebody went, there's already a vector throw routine that came with the game. And I'm like, why do we have three? And they also <laughs> did, they did not work well together. In case um, one breaks. Yeah. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, doing that. I actually found a bug in the source engine that I traced back to Quake 2 code that I was inordinately proud of. Wow. Um, that the game could uh, crash if you passed two coincident vectors into their arctangent function. I hate when that happens. I remember yeah. that 15 years later because <laughs> I was like, I think John Carmack wrote that. Code. And like how many how many death matches in Quake 2 have we lost uh, collectively where like our vectors have just crossed the wrong <laughs> it's just you know <laughs> I, I'm sure more than one <laughs> That's what I blame it on anyway Fair enough. Yeah so 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 long as so long as we're not I'm not blaming me I'm happy I guess uh, <laughs> So one of the things about uh, Vampire Bloodlines that was unusual is what it came out in 2004, as I remember. And there were there's there were not a lot of uh, like 3D point of view video games out there that I can remember. Certainly not in the uh, the RPG space. And you guys had just come off of making um, Arcanum and then uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil, which I mean, not not to throw too much sh sunshine, but were some of the best top-down isometric role-playing games in the business. So, like, did it feel at all risky to switch engines? Like, why was that choice made? Uh, let me preface this by saying that, like, you succeeded at it. I'm not hacking on you. I'm just curious about the process. Well, we always said we wanted to do... Yeah, the, the, one of the main reasons we we went top-down isometric in uh, Fallout was because of the um, fidelity I wanted to get out of the art. Um, I mean, it's it's weird that, that 
the art consideration came first because I'm not sure how we would have done a GURPS turn-based game in first person. <laughs> but we were actually considering that and, and looking at things like Doom, and that was before Quake, but we were just like, you know, can we do a, a third-person game? Because there was some first-person full 3D games at that point, but the, the, the textures and the, and the amount of polygons were just really low quality. Um, but what happened was Scott Lynch... Um, was was the head of Sierra. He was the guy who signed us to do our cam. He was also the guy who signed Valve to do Half-Life. And then uh, there was all this consolidation, and Sierra got merged with Vivendi? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I remember that very well, because I was like a message board dog on the, on the, uh, the Arcanum boards, and one day it was Vivendi Universal Games, and they'd, they'd gotten the moderators to say a bunch of positive things about Vivendi. <laughs> it was really wild. So anyways, when that happened, uh, maybe Scott had a similar situation because he very soon wasn't working there anymore, and he was involved with... with uh, he works at Valve to this day. He's one of the VPs. I mean, he's a head guy there. If you play, if you play Half Life One and Two, he's the security guard Barney. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> that's him, really. Oh, that. that's funny. So, but anyways, um, so what happened was we were working for. We had finished Arcanum. Uh, we were, had not yet gotten the contract for Temple. Uh, we were working on. Uh, Lord of the Rings RPG for Sierra, and they pulled the rug out from under us, and they said, we're not doing that. I'm trying to think of what the chain of events. Actually, no, I think the, that came later. They decided they wanted it done internally. No, actually, this could be, I could have the, 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 uh, the chronology wrong, but I think what happened first was after Arcanum shipped, it was doing good at first, but then it didn't do as good as they thought, so I was talking with Scott Lynch. We were talking with Scott Lynch and Gabe Newell about making the sequel to Arcanum using the Half-Life engine, uh, the Source engine for Half-Life Oh, interesting. 2. And so we wanted to do this game called Journey to the Center of Arcanum that was going to be a first-person, basically what became Vampire, and then they couldn't come to an agreement. And the only reason they wanted to make it a sequel to Arcanum at that point was if we got to use the source engine. So when that fell through, that's when I think we got right. the um, the Lord of the Rings game, which then they decided, oh, who really wants a hardcore RPG based in in uh, you know Lord of the Rings? Because you know why would anybody <laughs> want that? They'd rather make a. But it's interesting. It took so long to work out that deal with Activision and. Um, You're skipping ahead. Hold on a second. Oh. So and then I'll let you tell that part. So what happened then was, so when I flew up to Sierra to have a meeting about how this Lord of the Rings game was going to go, we'd only been working on it for a couple weeks at that point, so maybe a month. And right before the meeting, I got pulled into an office with our producer, and he tells me that um, they're canceling all the games. Oh, and so no. I'm, like, freaking out. I call back to the office. I tell him we don't have a contract anymore. We have, like, something like two weeks to make payroll. And I called Scott Lynch, and I asked him if there was anything that he knew of that somebody might be interested in. And then within like a week, we were talking to um, uh, Activision about doing Vampire using the Half-Life engine because they wanted somebody to take on the, the uh, Vampire license. Well, that's wild. Um, do you go for but, it? 
that negotiation took so long that while that was going on, uh, Wizards of the Coast contacted me and asked if we wanted to do a, a D&D uh, version 3, uh, game, edition 3. And I was like, I love, I love edition 3. Um, and they're like, hey, if, if you could pick any module, what would you pick? And I was like, I'd pick Temple of Elemental Evil. And they're like, okay, let's make that. And the contract happened so quickly that by the time they got back to us about Vampire Bloodlines, I had already signed the Temple contract, and I they key-manned me, so I couldn't work on Vampire until I finished Temple. Yeah, that was an interesting oh, process funny. because we got involvement from Activision very quickly, and they started paying us, and we started developing the game, but it took a long time for them to hash out the contract, and it was going so... It, the, the process just seemed so weird to us, and so slow and and it didn't seem like they were going to be able to come to terms i would have bet money that 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 game was going to fall through which is one of the reasons we were so eager to sign the temple deal we at one point we all were were betting on the fact that we'd all be working on temple and then both of them ended up happening at the same time that's really cool i i guess like you know what is the what does that do to like the the creative process? Like I, it would seem to me that that stuff from Temple would have bled into stuff from Vampire and vice versa. Where like, I mean, you're, you're such like you're like a, a close kind of like working group working on these two titles that seem like they're kind of like birthing themselves at the same time. I mean, was there any sort of creative over overlap there? Not really. I mean, we played when we thought the Vampire thing was going to fall through. We started playing. Uh, Tim started running us through the Temple of Elemental Evil um, module. We were all playing D&D. Um, but during that time, Jason continued pre-production and started working on ideas. Uh, we started talking about story stuff. Um, we, we didn't quite start building up the Temple team because we thought we were all going to move over on the Temple. I don't remember the exact time where we decided we had to just split into two completely different teams because it looked like we are going to continue on both of them. Yeah, Temple was really fast, though. Temple was made in a year and a half. Wow. So um, we, we got started on it really quickly. And I remember I, and I, remember I talked to Guy Gax about it because it was a couple years before he passed away. And oh, that man. Was great. Yeah. Just a one-on-one phone call with Gary Guy Gax for an hour was fantastic. <laughs> so... You you said something that's really caught my attention here. So to start getting prep for the Temple of Elemental Evil, you guys did the module. So is the implication that when you guys were getting ready for Vampire Bloodlines, were you playing Vampire the Masquerade with each other? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Tim Tim wanted to run the team through through that module, and I I played GURPS before. I wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was. Much younger, I got like the second edition blue box, I think, when I was in like eighth grade. But I didn't know anybody who played Dungeons and Dragons, and me and my friends tried to figure it out a couple times. Um, but especially back then, you know, you died. We'd spend like a day or two creating our characters and then die within five minutes because we didn't understand, you know, how to run a game. So that's what I wanted to do. I mean, when we made Fallout, it was originally going to be a GURPS game, so I made everyone on the team play GURPS and I, I was the DM and then or the GM and then so I just assumed I'd do the same thing on Temple I thought they'd be doing the same thing over on Vampire <laughs> but that by the time I came on board a year and a half later everybody was well into making the game yeah we really didn't have the time for that we play, we were playing a lot of GURPS even before we got the license that's true I could play Conan in space and all that yeah well you didn't have right. your GM there so like all the pressure's off the inmates get to run the asylum 
Well, that's you can tell because like one of I think the biggest problem with the Temple is I don't think the writing was very strong, and that's mm. because you know Leonard and Jason and Chad were are really strong writers, and they were on Vampire, which is you know Vampire has incredible writing. So yeah, right. If I can, I want to jump in real quick and and ask a little bit about the writing in, in Vampire because it's one of the things that that has. So uh, one of my co-hosts on another podcast uh, that I do is obsessed with the. Um, is obsessed with these games and also the, the, the TTRPGs that go with it. And like, he talks a lot about bloodlines. He's very excited about the sequel. Um, I, I am less excited because I know you two aren't involved with it, but you know, <laughs> teach their own. Um, well, but Ryan Matsoda's working on that. He was, he was one of the main writers. Oh, on, see. Uh, okay. You, on you, our game. you got me, you got me back in, you pulled me back in, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean like the, so like one of the things that comes up a lot, right. And, and it's come up a lot in the, in the pre-press. And I think it's one of the, the factions that gets the most play in, in the vampire games is uh, the Malkavians. Um, no, I'm not as big of a, of a vampire head. I've played a little bit of bloodlines, so I'm not as steeped in the lore, but like one of the things that's been so dicey and interesting about the Malkavians is this idea that they are like, you know, mentally unstable. Um, how did you guys go about doing that? Cause obviously the portrayal has kind of re- received both like controversy and praise. And it's, it's one of those like classic gaming um, debate moments. Uh, uh, you'll find people talking about the Malkavians. Like wh- where did you come from when you were writing that? Like, how did you sort of like think about that, that group and, and what, what did you bring to the table with that? Well, what was really interesting is, you know, in Fallout and Arcanum, we really liked having the dumb dialogue path. Um, so That's when it came to the Malkavians, so when it came I, to the Malkavians, they were in some ways our not dumb dialogue path, but they were our unique dialogue path. And we wanted hmm. them to be very humorous, but we wanted them to have a dark side too, because there is that, um, you know, they've, they've lost touch with reality because they, they hear voices. And um, so there was some experimentation between Brian Mitsota and Chad Moore and how to write them. And uh, that was, you know, I have to give them credit for, for that. I mean, we all talked about the humor. We all talked about, you know, how we wanted, you know, them to argue with the television set or, or a stop sign and things like that. Um, or just gener- in general, that type of humor. Um, I think they came up with those specific ideas. But um, in terms of, of the details of how they approached them, that was pretty much them. They, they came huh. up with an interesting way to kind of, um, you know, encapsulate that Malkavian viewpoint and, and uh, communicate it to players. Cool. And do you have, I asked, uh, I, I saddled Josh with this question too, uh, about fallout new Vegas. So I'm going to saddle you with it too. Uh, if you were a clan in bloodlines and I guess both of you have to answer this, uh, uh which would you be? I don't know. That's a tough one. I think I played through three times. First time I played through as Ventru. Second time I played through as Nosferatu, which was tough. Oh, that's nasty. Yeah. That's a tough playthrough. And then the third time I played through as Malkavian, just because everyone kept telling me, oh, you haven't seen any of this other dialogue. And like the first time the guy in the TV turned and started talking to me, <laughs> when you got into an argument with the stop sign, you're like, it's like, stop. And you're like, no, you stop. And it's like, I'm sitting here talking to a stop sign. And it pulls you in. You don't choose to talk to it. Just walking near it caused the conversation. And I'm like, this is a very different character. But the way it was explained to me, I didn't know the lore as well, is 
every that particular clan when they're when someone's turned they hear all this whispering from the ancestor vampires of that clan oh interesting once so they said it it it's distracting um they're hearing it all the time even when they're asleep it's a source of information but sometimes it's subconscious so like the Valkavian will know something but not know how they know it or they think someone's talking to them because they can't tell the difference between the whispering in their head and anything real life. supposed to hallucinate a, a bunch as well. Yeah, and they hallucinate. So it's got symptoms that are similar to schizophrenic people, but my understanding is they're not schizophrenic. It's it's the nature of the of that clan's vampiric infection. Interesting. It's one of the things that really gave me chills going through as a Malkavian is when you first encounter Jeanette and you start calling her Janice. Oh yeah, and so yeah, yeah. It's like all the way through the 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 Malkavian foreshadows. Like on some level, they really know what's going on, but at the same time, they can't really zip up their pants. And that combination (laughs) makes for great play gameplay. I really loved it. I guess that's not a question, but I'm saying cool. (laughs) You know, that is the point. At least how they were approaching it, how we how we approached it was. Um, that they were supposed to actually have knowledge and information that wasn't available to other players. That's cool. That seems like, it seems like a, like a, a foreshadowing of a lot of how, or like an early version of a lot of like um, uh, CRPGs in the way that like, there's always, there always seems to be a class where you give up a lot for kind of added dialogue options. Um, and I mean, that was in fallout too. So I guess like, it's not like, it's not as if that was something that, only showed up in bloodlines, but like that sort of um, almost, almost like fourth wall winking character where it's like, yeah, this is the, the game's going to be a little weird. If you pick this class, um, that's like, it sort of seems like an early version of that. That's really cool. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how games have changed. Like I, I know you guys both were worked on uh, outer worlds, which is, I mean, we can, I, I suppose it's not technically open world because there are sections and places you travel to, but like compared to what was going on in vampire bloodlines, it's extremely open world uh, because like uh, vampire bloodlines is like, you've got this small area, which could even be a room. There's a loading screen. You get into it, you do your thing and then you leave leave and there's another loading screen and so you really it's like a it's like a series of subway cars you move between whereas whereas something like outer worlds has a tendency to flow a lot more and there's more happening in the same space and uh uh does that change your choices when you're building a narrative in a video game uh if we had known about it probably (laughs) when we were designing vampire we really um had hoped to have those you know santa monica hollywood that that would be a contiguous space and that there wouldn't be a lot of loads um that we could stream effectively and none of that happened uh originally what we did to handle that was you would have a chunk of that city and the interiors that you would go and do were one map but let's say you were running back and forth between the sides of the exterior and you would load into like, let's say it was broken up into four chunks. So that was, it was that way for a little while or quite a while. Um, I remember how long that was, but that was our first attempt. So it was, you know, if you were in that one corner of the map, there was no loading. As long as you stayed in that corner of the map, I'd go into the hospital. I'd go into, you know, my, my room, I'd go into different places and there wouldn't be any loading. But as soon as I stepped across that imaginary line, I'd have to load. And it just felt very disconnected, and we felt it just 
was way better feeling if we made the whole city map one map and then you just jumped in and out you had to load into all the buildings you went into hmm. that makes sense yeah i mean we were it was so it was such a difficult development process that um i mean the way you're supposed to do it or the way you we would like to do it is figure out what the engine can do what kind of gameplay we're going to have and build a lot of our design narrative choice our narrative design choices around that but yeah, unfortunately it just took us so long to get anything up and going on that uh, engine apart from just running around maps that we really didn't have a chance to uh, iterate that much on how the the two things fit together mm. makes sense so uh so whenever Whenever I, well, actually, this is more a thing of the past, but when people used to talk to me about the limitations of gaming and, you know, whether whether or not it could be an art form or construct a narrative or any of those things, what I would do is I would bring people to the haunted house uh, near Santa Monica because that was that was actively scary. Like that was a very affecting part of the game for me. And so one of the things I was thinking about as as when I freaked out and found out you guys were going to be on my show, uh, which I'm not over yet, by the way. It Still is, working through that. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a work in progress. But, uh, like, when you have a, a group effort like this, how do you look at it and you say, that's mine? Like, can you look at something like The Haunted House and say, well, that was that was Tim's work. That was his idea. That was his his coding, whatever it is. And then, like, the psychiatrist's uh, house would be Leonard's. Or, like, how do you divide that up and say, this piece of this work is on me? Well, uh, it's interesting that you picked The Ocean House as an example because what happened with The Ocean House was we, we knew what we wanted – we were not able to do it. It's like everybody took a stab at it. I think pretty much everybody on the team, design-wise and scripting-wise, had worked on it. Um, it just wasn't coming together. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to keep it. It just, it just wasn't working. Um, and then finally, Jason kind of locked himself in his office for three or four days and <laughs> uh, made it work. Um, you know, there's some great writing in there from Chad. I think Brian wrote some stuff in there as well. Um, but really, uh, Jason was the one who made that work. So regardless of all the work everybody else put into it, um, you know, it wasn't him, his from start to finish, but I really credit him with making that level work because it just wasn't working. We, we, no one else could, could kind of pull it together. Mm. Uh, but on most things, especially in a game like that with a small team, um, you know, in terms of like a dialogue, you'll have, oh, the writer wrote this dialogue, but then there's the people who animated the character, there's the people, you know, who texture map mapped it, modeled it. Um, it's really a collaborative effort. Um, there's very few things in games, especially now, where you can point to it and say that was mine. It was, it was different on like Arcanum and Fallout, um, because we'd all have to work on big giant chunks of the game ourselves because of just the smallness of the team and the development cycle. That I, that actually ties into another question I had, so I'm going to skip around if that's all right. Uh, can we talk the about audience how the audience can't actually see the document, Pete? It's okay to skip around. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Trevor. Sorry to clown. Uh, <laughs> So uh, could we talk about the nature of game design as to where it was is now as opposed to a decade or even 20 years ago? I, it's The impression I get is that things are tightening up and like 
crunch time is becoming a mandatory thing rather than an unfortunate thing that happens sometimes. And things you're talking about, there's more of an assembly line model going on. Is that is that accurate? Is that is the world changing in that way? Actually, I'm not sure if I'd say crunch time is getting worse because we actually didn't have a lot of crunch on Outer Worlds. There was there was some, there was like, some. like like some of our artists put in a lot of time, um, but it wasn't it wasn't a death march, um, you know. And then way back in Fallout, uh, there was times where we were there seven days a week, especially in Arcanum, especially. So it's gotten better for us over the years. Um, Obsidian, and, uh, Obsidian has a pretty good reputation, though, in terms of crunch, right? Like where, like, it's not, it's not uh, known to be. There were some pretty painful times on games like New Vegas because they oh, that okay. eighteen months. For some uh, reason, I thought they had a better labor, legal, like, better labor reputation than than places. I mean, like Rockstar has the worst, but like than some yeah, other well, places, right? And I can't speak to. I haven't worked at any of those places. But, sure, you know. So I have a lot of. I have pretty much the same information that you have. Oh yeah, but. I, I feel like when Obsidian crunched or we crunched a, a Troika or on Fallout, it was due to the uh, passion of the developers, uh, the low budget, and and not being able, not having enough time or money to do what we wanted to do as developers. Um, and Obsidian and, and some of Arcanum, I mean, some of uh, Troika, especially Vampire had to do with, um, you know, deals with publishers mm. and milestones that were imposed with publishers. Sure. So it wasn't our corporate culture. Uh, it wasn't corporate culture at Troika. It wasn't corporate culture. It's not corporate culture at Obsidian to plan around crunch or design a game that needs a lot of crunch. But there have been times where just exterior forces, uh, you know, mandated that. Um, it was, I mean, the forces themselves mandated it. It wasn't like people outside of us were saying you had to do this. Right. Um, but it does seem like there are some companies out there that they kind of plan to, to crunch. And, and I don't, I don't like that. I don't think that that's a sustainable model. No. And I, I, I think that's, that's pretty fair. I think like the, the idea that. I mean, it's the same sort of idea of like uh, once you see a labor shortage, you say like, well, you're lucky you have a job kind of thing. Like you should be you should be yeah. proud, proud to work eight days a week. Um, so, I, yeah, I think some companies seem to again, I don't have any inside information here, but it's, it seems like some companies seem to plan around that. I think the the idea that sometimes there will be a moment where it gets busy, the the analogy I always used was like with accountants with busy season. Where like busy season happens every year and they end up working like seven days a week and it sucks for like two or three months. But like I, you can't do accounting without that. Like it's, it's just part of the part of the part of the beast as opposed to something where it's like, oh, it's a great job, except for like six months a year. You work seven days a week. Yeah, I, I would view it as making a game is as much art as science. And mm. you, just, you can't always predict like how long will it take? Before that mechanic is working perfectly, I don't know. Yeah, you know, is this level big enough to feel like it has good exploration? We're not sure yet. You know, Gotta as play you make more right. zones, you do get better at predicting that. But the the fact that you're required to predict all of that the very first week you decide to make this game. I mean, we were we were required to make a schedule for three years on week one. And, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, that that's horrifying. Yeah, and it's it, and you can't really do it. So you try to do things like, well, we're trying to have a vertical slice by this amount. Um, what we did better on Outer War by, by this time, what we did really better on Outer Worlds and previous games we've made was we were good at editing things. When we mm. we made a vertical slice, we're like, oh, th- these things take longer to make than we thought. And then we did a horizontal slice, which was we gray 
boxed the entire game from start to finish along the main story arc. And we're like, oh, this is how long it's going to be. Or this level is way bigger than we can't possibly... It's way bigger than we expected. We're not going to be able to fill it up with content. Um, so that, that we were much better at doing that in Outer Worlds. And part of the problem these days is with AAA games, the visual fidelity that they have is, is ridiculous. And there's an arms race, uh, an arms race for the best, you know, visuals, the best animation. Of course. And all of that stuff is time and money. And, um, you know, the bigger budget is, the more you have, more units you have to sell. So it's just this weird, um, you know, to compete in the marketplace, your, your game has to look a certain way. Um, and it's really difficult and time consuming to get that kind of visual fidelity going. That was one of the biggest shocks for us on this game was, you know, in, in uh, Vampire, uh, you know, you 3D model an object and slap a texture map on it and put it in the game, you know, it's done in a day. Now even the simplest objects take, take a lot longer than that because of the different materials, the, you know, the lighting and the levels, all the stuff is at, goes into making any kind of uh, asset. And there's like, there's a, there's a way that like uh, some of the, some of the developers that I really like that are working in indie spaces are working on like, sort of uh, uh, almost like reverse engineering the old polygon models, like even pre 2004, like, like PS one style models um, to make horror games or like interesting narrative games or something like that. And there's, there's almost something in those like 3d objects or to take fallout something in like, I mean, I can still picture my character in well, like I can still picture like the first party member you get in fallout. I'm terrible with names, but the first party member you get in fallout. Ian, well, Ian thank you. Who gets the leather jacket? Like, it's just like it, I can picture that figure in, in the same way that I can picture a lot of the figures from Planescape uh, Torment and in games like that far better than I can picture, like, I don't know, uh, any characters in a game that I even really enjoyed, like uh, the most recent Prey. I think that was a great game, but like, I don't really remember the character models that much because they were just real people looking things as well, opposed to the the kind of like representation, uh, which well, works I wonder better. Part of that is that you had to imagine so much. Yeah. Or for the, you know, like a Planescape or a Fallout. So you brought so much of it, of yourself into it, that it, it stuck with you more. Yeah, I bet that's right. I mean, like there's, there seems to be something that is lost in that kind of fidelity as well, where like, it's just, it's like it, no matter how nice it looks, it's never quite as evocative as it is when you, like you say, bring something to the table yourself. Yep. I, I'm not sure that was a question, Trevor. Well, I asked, I asked a question and it was answered. Um, <laughs> You have questions, though. I'm yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, over the past few years, some of the games from Troika, I think all of them, actually, because I bought them, uh, so the Troika games came out on Steam. And I already had them on CD, but I ended up buying them on Steam for a couple of reasons. One was because it's convenient and the other is I had sort of this vague idea that, well, you guys were good to me. Why wouldn't why wouldn't I make sure that the money and recognition went, you know, went around again 20 years later? But is that true? Like, is there so there is a, a financial relationship or ownership between you and those games still? No. Well, technically there is. But the last time I followed up. Uh, on one of them, which was a few years ago, I followed up on Temple, and I was told, oh, well, it still hasn't collected enough to be royalty. And the only way I could find that out for sure was by doing a forensic audit of 
Who owns Temple now? Uh, um, I don't know who bought Atari's name. I yeah, Watsy. Um, and there's so many limitations on it. Like, I have to pay for it myself. Um, That's terrible. I can't do more than once a year. Um, if, uh, if they find something, then, um, then, then they have to pay me, but I then, but the, the audit gets paid for first. So I have to hope they're going to find something that's going to be more money than the cost of the audit. And you have to wonder if under a situation where you don't have to pay someone unless they audit you. Are you going to? <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, we're, we're all doing our taxes around like in the next couple of months. And I mean, how many how many times have we left off something that we don't think is going to be checked up on? Uh, personally, never. for the IRS never. people listening, I've never done it, but I've heard <laughs> stories. Um, but no, I mean, that, that's exactly right. Like it's it that that's a really I've never heard of that part of Steam uh, pricing, but I've also well, I've not, often it's heard. It's not Steam; it's the publisher. It's the publisher. Oh, it's the publisher. Okay, yeah. that, that would be why. Well, okay, then, you know, one of the things if you if you look at um, Hollywood, for instance, um, you know, the big stars when they get percentages, they get percentages of gross. Mm-hmm. Because what you find out in in all entertainment industries is that they can make it seem like they never made any money. I, I I forget what it was. It was some huge blockbuster movie. My big fat Greek wedding. Was that what it was? Where they where she had to, she had to sue them because they kept saying we, they weren't making any money. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, it like yeah. I mean it's that okay. I I that makes a ton of sense to think about it as like a publisher thing because I I rarely get that that uh that perspective. So that's um yeah. Steam apparently is pretty good at. You know, for every dollar they they bring on a game, they pass seventy cents. Well, that's to the publisher. The publisher is supposed to pass things on to the developer. Yeah, that's okay. Where it doesn't happen. Well, that's one of the reasons there's not a lot of mid-sized developers left anymore. Um, you know, we were chasing a, a business model that really wasn't wasn't great for the developers. We just couldn't get a deal where we would make any money beyond the um, initial payment to make the game. Mm. Yeah, and that's. Plus, I mean, all, plus, our games weren't huge successes either, so there was that. So there was that problem as well. I liked. I I felt really bad. Uh, this is this is neither here nor there, but I was like, I was doing my initial like, did I get everything right in my memory check of Wikipedia on Bloodlines and the um the the way it describes the sales of Bloodlines, I thought was like really kind of mean, where where it said something like. Uh, Forced up against sequels to Metal Gear and and like other games, it only sold a hundred thousand copies. And I was like, "That's a lot of copies to sell." That That's is really a lot mean. of copies. Yeah, I thought I thought you guys got a short shrift on the old Wikipedia page. Well, we were, they released it on the same day as Half Life Two. So Seems that was, that was smart. That's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's that's rough. that was ridiculous. But it it eventually sold. 350,000 units, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a well beloved game. It's it's certainly oh, it has a it's I, w- I would say it's beyond cult status at this point. Most people most people would know it. Yeah, absolutely. And and like the I after our, our what we've just talked about, I feel terrible saying it, but those games have been doing great on Steam. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it's a moral victory, the best yeah. kind. That's right. Oh man, so um. 
I suppose I should ask, like you, you guys were so gracious to, to come on my show. Um, is it, do you have any, any upcoming projects or things that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Because if, you know, if you want to convince our thousand viewers to, to, to check out your stuff, I'm all about it. Uh, well, at least you're playing the outer worlds. That's for sure. Um, I think that's yeah, a, yeah. I think that's a Podside picnic discord favorite as, as I recall. It, it is. It is. We love that game. Oh, thank you. Um, and we we announced the DLC recently, but we haven't really talked much about that, so we can't really did it. Yeah, we did. Did we? Okay, yeah. DLC, and of course it's going on Switch. There's things I'd love to talk to you about, but we're not allowed to. Gotta love those. Uh, gotta love those NDAs. Um, yeah, but it's important. They, they, they just don't want us to mention things too early and get people excited. <laughs> And then you find out you can't do it or something like that. Yeah. I, oh, sorry. We had to cut all the uh, all the massive jetpack races that we bragged about on that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I I need to ask this: Is it Arcanum? Because for twenty years I've been saying Arcanum. That's Arcanum. <laughs> oh my god! Okay. You should go back and like inform your younger self. <laughs> That's rough. Incredible. Uh, um, well, tra- when you make up words, you get to decide how they're pronounced. <laughs> that was kind of sort of a word. There was other things called arcanum. It was it, it was it was a real word, but we decided. Well, at least I decided that since my last name was Kane, I wanted it pronounced arcane. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. You know what? Well, I, in in the in the era of games making that you were doing it, and that's the only re- and, and maybe even today, it's the only reasonable response. Oh yeah, yeah got to get your name in there. Well, if anybody's going to make me change how I pronounce the name of that game, it's like I'm bending the knee to you guys. That's only fair. <laughs> um, can I ask you guys, like, uh, and this will be like my last question, but like for, I mean, you've been in the, you've been in the industry for a long time um, at this point. Like what, like, is there, is there a game or a particular sort of like moment of your own career that you hold in like, I won't say I won't say seriousness or like significance, but like more fondness than you think maybe some of the people who played your games did. Like, is there is there like a hidden gem that you feel like, you know, this is the game I really loved and it it didn't get the recognition I thought it deserved or like this is the sort of moment in a game I thought was good or this is the piece of work I did. Yeah, you get the basic idea. Uh, Well, fortunately, we've had really good fans who have loved a lot of the stuff we've done. So that is fortunate. um, you know, because I'd say two of the favorite things I've ever done in my whole career are probably the intro, with with the help of Jason Anderson, uh, the intro uh, and the uh, outro, the end cinematic to uh, to Fallout. But I think those are beloved by a lot of people. For me, I'd say probably the biggest thing that I I loved that we did or I did was in Arcanum, you could uh, convince the uh, striking orcs to riot and kill everybody in Tarrant. <laughs> and I don't think many people did that, but I just, and it was, it was a hard thing to get working, but I was so proud that, that we let you destroy a major hub and basically make it worthless. You couldn't play, you couldn't go back there. Well, you could go back there, but you couldn't buy things. or you couldn't do anything. <laughs> it's like but solid labor we were, politics though. I, I, yeah, I like we were it. really committed to those kind of things in our canon. We wanted you to be able to do just anything you wanted to be able to, uh, you could think of. That's really cool. And that's like years I, before you like a lot of games would let you do that. Bridge, Grand Slam Bridge. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I was, I was joking with Leonard because I uh, the, I started in the industry 39 years ago, and I found 
the t-shirt, the first game t-shirt I was ever given for a game called Grand Slam Bridge back in 85. <laughs> and it was made by Electronic Arts. Um, I wouldn't say it's my most memorable game. I mean, we, we all have our Grand Slam Bridge memories. I, I think oh, like, yeah. you know, we could be we, here all night if we were to talk about all the games we've done. I but. know. <laughs> we, we, we could ramble. I, I mean, it, it's funny because there's, every game we've made has something that I just loved beyond proportion to what other people probably thought its importance was in the game. And I know in Arcanum for me, it was doing the quests for the master level of any skill. Like the, the, the master level pickpocket was a snot nosed kid in Tarant that he made you run around. He made you take off all your, all your he made you go naked and run around a big city block. Cause he said, <laughs> if you can do that, then you can definitely, you know, handle, you know, if you did the sneaker pickpocket. Yeah, yeah, and well, no, it was it was this pickpocket one, I think. But um, yeah, and then we did like if you did that, then everybody in Tarant would make comments about you were the person who's running around, and that was the kind of thing that that we loved doing in Arcana. There's there's probably a, an hour's worth of things we could talk about, yeah. um, like that quest where that I did where you had. Uh, go capture a rabbit that they said was going to turn into basically a Bigfoot type creature. And they were like, oh, here's, cover yourself with this urine so you can sneak up on it. And then we had a flag set that NPCs consistently for a while afterwards would, would, you know, comment on your smell or what's that smell. Yeah. Um, That's great. Just crazy little stuff like that that really didn't matter in the greater scope of the game, but we just love to well, do it. I mean, they go back to bloodlines. The thing I loved most about the ocean house I mean, I love the Ocean House. It's my favorite level. Was right before you go, whoever's telling you to go there is like, now be careful. You know, it might be haunted. You know, and you, your character says something like, I don't really believe in this supernatural stuff. And you're like, you're a freaking vampire. <laughs> of course there's a supernatural uh, hierarchy, and you're not at the top of it. You're at the bottom. It's like when uh, it's like when uh, Marvel Comics characters or DC Comics characters say like, oh, like I can't possibly, uh, you know, I, I can't possibly believe that there are like these galactic beings that would that could that could harm us when they're being surrounded by superheroes. It's sort of like, yeah, where, 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 where's your head at this point? <laughs> when when I was a, uh, a helper on the the Arcanum forum saying it properly, there was a there was a guy who came to ha for help because he had convinced the orcs to riot and it had broken the quest line so he could so he could, and he was trying to figure out what to do and so i was like well have you tried going to ashbury and killing everyone there and and he tried it and he came back angry because it didn't fix the quest <laughs> Which quest did it book? The quest where you're supposed to be convincing uh, Don Throg to step down or whatever? I think so, yeah. But, I, like, at any rate, it, it wasn't... He, he felt like he couldn't continue the main quest line because of what had happened. See, that's... I, I mean, not that I would be surprised if it broke, but I'm wondering if he thought because he did that that it was broken and it wasn't. Because it did make it a lot more difficult because you couldn't do anything in Tarant anymore. But theoretically, it shouldn't have kept you from being able to finish the game. Yeah. We tried, when we designed Arcanum, we tried to make it that there was very few things that you had to do, specific things that you had to do. 
Um, and there were always, always backups to those things so that the game could, the main story arc could continue along. Yeah, That's like you, sold the, you could sell the ring at the beginning of the game, and we covered that. that. Like, if you didn't have the ring anymore, you could just tell people you had had it and describe it to them. Yeah, you could kill important NPCs, and either you didn't need them anymore, or you could speak with dead and get the answers that way. <laughs> That's really cool. Unreal. Well, Pete, do you want last word? Do you want last question? Uh, I actually, I, no, not really. I, I would like to <laughs> oh, say, <no. laughs> uh, guys, this has been, uh, this has been an incredible experience for me because I've been a fan of your work for, uh, almost 20 years now. And the idea that you'd be willing to come on my show on such short notice, it has been pure pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for asking You're welcome. Oh, yeah, of course. Actually, I, now I'll ask you one last quick lightning round question. If you were a, <laughs> if you were a, uh, a, a movie vampire, would you rather be uh, suave Bella Lugosi or a terrifying Nosferatu? Bella Lugosi. I was going to say it's hard to top suave Bella Lugosi. Yeah. I, it is. Yeah. I mean, there's something very, there's something very cool, I guess, as like uh, a dad who doesn't get to sleep a lot uh, like me. I, uh. I think it's cool to be Nosferatu and like look at the sun and, and get really annoyed and then crawl back in a cave. <laughs> there's, something, there's something very, very appealing about that to me. But uh, I, you know, I can't I can't fault you. Suave Bella Lugosi is uh, is definitely a goal. If bloodlines taught me anything, that Nosferatu path is too hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. This has been a real pleasure for me, too. And thanks for having me on, Pete. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, everyone. All right, thank you. Guys. Right, take it easy. Bye.